Good morning. Late breaking news, I've just been informed that there are sign-up sheets for the, <laughs> for the potluck, and so if you would care to, they'll be in the, in the back there. <laughs> We're working our way through the letter to the Hebrews. We don't know who wrote it. This is one of those chapters, if you were reading through the Bible, you would might skim through it. A lot of detail, uh, but just so that we can understand, um, Israel was different than we are. Israel was a theocracy. And a theocracy means that there was absolutely no separation between church and state. There was no separation. The law of God was the law of the land. And so if you wanted to find something that would kind of be like it, probably Islamic countries. That would be a way that we could understand a little bit more. And Jesus came, and he came to inaugurate a new covenant, which means he came to inaugurate a new law. It also means that he came to replace the old one. And if you think of what that might be like to have been a citizen of Israel, have somebody come who wants to inaugurate a new covenant, that would be something like somebody approaching the Senate, indicating that they are going to replace the Constitution with a new Constitution. And the questions posed to Christians at the time, especially Jewish Christians, what gives Jesus the right to do that? God laid down the law from Mount Sinai. Who is Jesus to come and change a law that God put in place 1,400 years earlier. Uh, this is the question being hurled at Jewish Christians who were the first to embrace Jesus. And I would imagine that sometimes when you follow Jesus because he did miracles or you really liked what he said, at some point some of the details of what you signed on to that might have escaped you start to be surfaced, and this might have been one of them. So Jewish Christians are trying to field these questions. How could Jesus change a law that we have lived by for 1,400 years? The writer of this letter provides a foundation for Jewish believers to stand up underneath the withering attack from their unbelieving countrymen. And what he does, he talks about this guy called Melchizedek, who has this little tiny mention in the Bible. He's only two verses and doesn't say much about him. But the writer uses Melchizedek to talk about a priesthood that predated the one that Moses put into effect. Anyway, let's... If you have your worship folder, we'll, we'll just work our way through it. Um, talk about a new priesthood and a new priest, beginning in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues to be a priest forever. And again, all of this is taken from this, I'll just read it, this little mention of Melchizedek 
in the Bible. Let me, it won't take that long, and this is all the information we have about him. In Genesis 14, here's what it says. After his return from the defeat of Kurtulamur and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that's Abraham, at the valley of Shaveh. That is the king's valley. So Abraham went out, did battle with some kings, defeated them. And so he's coming back, and here's what happens. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So the thing that makes Melchizedek interesting at the time is that he had two hats. He was both a king and a priest. And Israel, they really strictly separated the two. You can't be a king and a high priest. And there were two offices then. The king, again, represented the government. And the priest, the high priest especially, is the one who intersected Human beings with a holy God. That's what high priest did. He's the one that entered the most holy place once a year, and he did it to to atone for the sins of the people. He had a very important role, and that's why God selected the high priest. Nobody could appoint themselves to be that. It was something that God put in place. So Melchizedek is unique that he wore two hats that the Israelites never allowed one person to, to wear. Um, the writer uses this guy, Melchizedek, to try to help Jewish Christians understand how does Jesus function? I mean, what, what is he to us? And um, what it says in verse 4, See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who receive the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by the one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Well, what it talks about tithes. And let's talk about tithes really briefly. Um, in the Old Covenant, established from Mount Sinai, that document wasn't just Ten Commandments teaching people how to live. That wasn't its purpose. It established a government and indicated some of the offices that the government had to put in place and what those officials did. It also stipulated for how these governing officials, we'll call them priests, would make a living. Because it stipulated that to be a priest, you had to be from the lineage of Aaron, which is Moses' brother. And so the sons of Levi, then they were those who could be the priests. And um, these priests then, you got a salary for being a priest. And the salary came from the 
donations, we'll call them donations, but the tithes. Tithes mean a tenth. So here's the deal. If you were a Levite, let's say the Levites were this group right here. You guys are Levites. So what would happen, the rest of us would pay this tithe. And this tithe would go so that you guys could have money with which to do what you needed to do. And the tithe also went to help the poor. And one more thing, the tithe went to provide money for us. If we live outside of Jerusalem, we have to make it to Jerusalem three times a year. So it came, so the tithe was also used for that purpose. So a tenth, a tenth, a tenth, and it ended up being, I've heard, maybe about 25, 26% of the salary, roughly the tax burden in a democracy. But it was the tax burden in a theocracy. That's the way. And here's what, here's what it says. If you look underneath the first point, um, here's what it says in the law. I give to the Levites all the tithes in Israel as their inheritance in return for the work they do while serving at the tent of meeting. From now on, the Israelites must not go near the tent of meeting or they will bear the consequences of their sin and will die. It is the Levites who are to do the work at the tent of meeting and bear the responsibility for offenses against it. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. They will receive no inheritance among the Israelites. Instead, I give to the Levites as their inheritance the tithes that the Israelites present as an offering to the Lord. So if you guys are priests, you don't get land as the rest of us would get. We would get property. We could buy and sell property. You guys don't get property. You get your living from serving at the temple and from the tithes that we collect and we give. And that's the way, that's the way the government worked. The tithe paid by the Jews at that time supported again the priests, the poor, and three celebrations for a year. Just so I want you to know, and, and we talk about this every once in a while, but it's important to understand. This tithe was not voluntary. It was mandatory. If you are one of the Israelites, you got to pony up because it's like, well, it'd be like not paying income tax. If you ever tried that before, I haven't. I, I wouldn't advise anyone to avoid that. They have, a, they have a way of being pretty good about who pays and who doesn't. I don't understand. They didn't have computers at the time, so they didn't have this. But, but it was something that was not, and again, the point is, it wasn't voluntary. It was mandatory. You had to do it. Um, it is to a theocracy again what income tax is in a democracy, the way government is funded. Really quick. We don't focus a lot on tithing. We do have giving, which is there's an offering taken from week to week because it keeps the lights on and individuals like myself who make part of my living from what I do from teaching and that it biblically is okay. There's this verse that says, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 9, don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple? 
those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar. In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Okay, that makes sense, doesn't it? Somebody whose job is that. People collect an offering, and part of the offering taken from Sunday to Sunday goes to part of my salary. Now, what we determine here is that, and yeah, this is just, you might not know this, so I'm just going to, a brief detour. None of us in leadership know what you give. What we determine is that we don't feel it is right for us to be in a position to judge you based on what you do and do not give. Now, in Israel, that wouldn't have been the case. It would have been important to understand if you paid the tithe or not. But because we believe that the tithe is a part of the old covenant operating system, that old covenant operating system died when Jesus did. He comes to inaugurate a new covenant. And that means that giving is still something that the Bible, well, here's what it says. Paul in 2 Corinthians says, each one must give as he decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Is giving still practice? Yes. Is it mandatory, something you have to do? No. That's what Paul says. It can't be grudging. It's not mandated or compulsory. What God is looking for is a cheerful giver. So what that means, Sunday by Sunday, you'll have the opportunity to give. You won't be checked on. Nobody's checking off your name. We won't audit your tax records and see how much you made. And this is, you know what? This happens in some churches. And I think it's flat out wrong that your bottom line would be scrutinized and you would get a bill from the church. I think it's wrong. I, I think it, that principle, it died when Jesus did. There is a, um, yeah, enough about that. Um, now, nah, not enough about that. I think there's one thing, though. I look back. I think I told you this. I look back to 2017, and um, in 2017, 400 billion dollars went to charitable gifts, and 127 billion of that went to churches, which is that's okay, good. But the burden placed on individuals, feeling like God demands that you tithe. And that's why people forked over the money. I don't know. No. That's why we can't do it. We can't do it. We won't tell you that God will bless you if you give 10% or 15%. we are not going to do it because I don't think it's true. Okay. Now I'll get off of it. No, I won't. Yes, I won't. Yes, I really won't. Uh, before the children of Abraham um, paid their tithes then, before they paid their tithes to the Levites, Abraham paid his tithe to this priest, Melchizedek. And so what the writer is doing, saying 
that this Melchizedek guy to whom Abraham, he is kind of first and foremost. He is a prototype. He existed from the beginning. And the point is, he's trying to help them understand how is Jesus functioning here? What is Jesus' role? And Jesus' role, he is both king and high priest. The way Melchizedek, Jesus wears two hats. He is the king of God's government and the priest whereby we who would come to God are connected to God because of Jesus. So all we have to do, all we have to know with respect to coming into a relationship with God, we don't have to worry about Aaron and Levi and his sons. Jesus is the one that we focus on. He is the person who connects us to God. And that's what, that's what the writer is saying. Um, the point isn't that um, we should give tithes to Melchizedek or to Jesus even. The point is that the priesthood established by Moses has been trumped by the priesthood established by Jesus. Priests exist to serve the law. This will become in a chapter that you might say, Mike, what's the point? Some of you really might be interested in government. You know, they say about government, it's one of those things that sometimes it's just better to know, to experience the product than it is to see the process. My father-in-law was a, uh, he was a meat inspector. And so I remember my uh, brother-in-law and I went to the slaughterhouse and we looked around where the meat was processed and you, if you've ever been it's, it's kind of a dicey thing they say that it's better to just enjoy the meat without really inspecting the way everything works out government can be like that you know enjoy the freedom and, and something we get wrapped up in the ins and the outs of governmental policy and functioning and, and that's some say it's like, so some of you might say this is a little bit too much detail. What I just stepping way back. Here's the thing that I want you to walk out with. Okay, here it is. You can tune me out for the rest of the time. Maybe. <laughs> okay, you ready for this? If there's a new priest, there has to be a new law. You got that? New priests don't use old laws. So when it talks about new wine and old skins, I think this is what it talks about. Jesus is a new priest, and a, and a priest exists to understand and apply the law. In their day, priests were like attorneys. They studied the law, and they applied it. And that's the way they function, because Israel was a theocracy. In our day, in a democracy, attorneys do that. So, does that make sense? And if, if you've got a change in the priesthood, you have to have a change in the law. And that will be important. Look what it says in verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there be, would there have been for another priest? to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. Verse 12. 
This is a biggie. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there must, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. Okay, I'm going to apply this. Is it possible then for Jesus, as a new high priest, to function according to the old covenant? No, he's a new priest. He can't, as a new priest, he can't use the old law as the basis. And for that reason, it's important. Be loving. Don't steal. Don't kill. Don't do, but understand that Jesus is not evaluating us according to the dictates of the old covenant. He can't because he's a new kind of priest. You understand that? So if you walk out of here understanding that, we'll talk about covenant from time to time. Hebrews 8 will talk about it. You might not hear a lot about it. It is pivotal. It is not possible to understand God's will if you don't understand the covenant by which he operates. Can't. What does God want? How does God operate? He operates according to a new covenant. We say this from time to time. The Old and the New Testament feel different, don't they? Would you agree? They feel different? God change? Did God change in the Bible? Oh, come on. Come on, some of you are shaking your head. No. All kinds of things happen in the Old. God really didn't, he didn't run out of bullets. And that's what happened. Ran out of bullets. No. God is the same. We know what God does. God operates according to covenants. That's what he does. In the Bible, he's operating under the old covenant and the old, and he's operating under the new covenant and the new. That's the difference between the old and the new. The covenant shifted. Is that good news? Boy, amen to that. Amen to that. God sees us and governs us under the dictates of the new covenant. Why? Because he's a new priest and he has to. Okay. Okay. Um, goes on, verse 13, for the one who, of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It was the tribe of Levi, not the tribe of Judah. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and usefulness. Lessness. It's talking about a former commandment has been set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. What is it speaking about? The old covenant. It wasn't able to accomplish the purpose. Now, there wasn't a mistake here. It's not that God rolled it out and said, oh, boy, Jesus, look at that. That's not working at all. That's really, no, that's not it at all. He understood exactly what would happen. That's why the Jesus is the lamb slain from the beginning of the world. 
God knew that it would start with an old, but would progress to a new covenant. It goes on. um, For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not made without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn, will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. If you hear this and you're saying, Mike, you know, I, 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 I hear it and I know this is important, but gee whiz, I get that. But what I do want us to understand, if you are an, a Jew in the first century, and you're trying to figure out how this thing works, you're writing like crazy. Say that again. How does this work? How does this Jesus work? Would you agree it would have been really confusing for them? There weren't a lot of things written down. And Paul comes and says to them, Jesus has inaugurated a new covenant. They knew he died, but there weren't a lot of things in writing. And they're being told that the old covenant is no longer how God is judging. You know what I'm glad for? I think it would have been really difficult to live in those days. I'm really glad that we live in a time, and again, that we have not just the Old Testament, but the New. And what we have are records of all the things that happened to bring us to a place that we can understand Jesus and what he accomplished, I think it would have been very difficult to have lived at that time. And that's why we talk about, I feel so, and we talk about so grateful to the first responders who were Jewish Christians, who were dispatched from Israel into the Roman Empire, so that 2,000 years later we would have record of this drastic switch says, verse 20, and it was not without an oath, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made priest with an oath. Jesus doesn't govern according to the old covenant. He is a new priest who serves a new law. If the old covenant had been able to connect men and women with God, it would have remained in effect. This wasn't what occurred, but that's not a mistake. Look what Jesus says in John 12, 24 through 25. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. I want you to imagine that you have an apple seed. If you have an apple seed, how many seeds do you have? One. Let's say you put that seed on this music stand. Put the seed on the music stand. How many seeds are you going to have if you come back in a year? One. How many seeds are you going to have if you put that seed in my gutters? <laughs> now, that's a more interesting thing because you would think it should be metal, but there are all these kind of things that exist. Okay, get, get past that. Let's say you take the seed. And you put it in the ground. 
and you come back in a year or two or three, how many seeds do you have? Exponential by the amount of fruit you have on the tree. Here's the point. Jesus and those through whom he introduces himself to the world. And they're the children of Abraham. What Jesus says, he and his people, they go into the ground so that what comes will allow us to be part of God's kingdom. Go into the ground means they're going to be exposed to very difficult things. And they were, and they were. And over the centuries, Jews have been the target of all kinds of, and it happened so again and again and again, and it's, you would say, why does God hate them? But he doesn't hate them. What's going to happen when Jesus comes a second time? He's going to gather his firstborn before him, and we who are alongside because of their influence, what he's going to do, he's going to point to us, and he's going to say, look at all these ones who are in my kingdom, and then he's going to look at his chosen ones because you lay down your life just like my son did. And you know what he's going to tell them? Well done. And you know what we're going to do? We're going to go up and say, I don't even know how I can say thanks. I'm not sure if we're going to do that. But we will look at our older brothers and sisters and we'll understand what they experienced so that we could have life. That's, that would be interesting. Um, God promised to bless the world through Abraham and his children. Those to and through whom God speaks to the world have added responsibilities and difficulties. Those who reproduce life have the scars to show for it. Um, one more verse, Hebrews 6.10, and this applies to anyone, but especially to the firstborn, I think. God is not unjust, and this is who it's written to. Here's what he says to them. God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love you've shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. Um, God doesn't change things at random. You'd say, okay, Mike, so he changed it. Is, are there going to be more changes? No. Look what it says. Last part of this chapter. It says, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Jesus will never not be high priest. So that means he'll always be there to connect us with a holy God. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Uh, Jesus will not be replaced 
the covenant he has inaugurated will never be replaced. That's why, and again, we're going to think about communion now and move towards that. You did really well. This is technical. And um, again, what I want you to do, come away with one thing. New priest, new law. And that's important. Because Jesus died to inaugurate a new covenant. And that's the covenant by which we are judged. And we'll talk about that in weeks to come. Um, but here's what happened. Just so you can understand what communion is about, I'm going to read a verse and then another one, and then we're going to have you. There's a table in the back. So I'm going to ask you to take the bread and the juice and think about Jesus as the inaugurator of a new covenant. Now, again, here's what happened. When Moses went up to Mount Sinai, before he came down with the tablets, they had a, well, let me read it. I'm just, you don't, it's not your thing, but just listen. Um, he, Moses, took the book of the covenant and read it to the people. It's like an instructions for how they were to govern themselves, what they were to do. And here's, so Moses read all these things to the people. Let's say you are at Mount Sinai. Moses reads all the stuff. Do this, do that, do ba 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 here, pay tithes, yeah, da 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 da, all that stuff. And then, uh, he read it to the people. The people responded, we will do everything the Lord has said. We will obey. You know what he did? They said, okay, we're in. Sign our name on the dotted line. And here's what happened after that. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with these words. So, and what that meant, that this was signed, sealed, and delivered. You are contractually obligated now to function according to this covenant. It's, okay, then this is what happened. Um, Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. Under his feet was something like a pavement made of sapphire, clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and they drank. You know what they, they ate and they drank, what that was about? It was about celebrating the ratification of a covenant. You know what communion is? Celebrating the ratification of a covenant. That's what it is. You know what this is? We have communion, and what we're supposed to think of? We're supposed to think about what happened at Calvary. That the old covenant was set aside. The new covenant was installed. And we who look at that covenant, look at the old, look at the new, say, I'll tell you what, I'll celebrate that. And that's what communion is. It's not just about forgiveness. We are embraced by a new covenant. And we'll talk about it. God says, I'm going to put my law in your minds and write it on your hearts. You're not responsible. I am. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or man his brother saying, know the Lord, because I will cause them to know me from the least of them to the greatest. You're not responsible to make me known. I am. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousnesses and remember their sins no more. 
You know what God does in the new covenant? I want you to listen to this. He assumes responsibility and absolves us of responsibility, ultimate responsibility. I will put my law in your minds and write it on your hearts. I will. I will keep Mike on his feet. I, I will cause you to know me. I will be merciful to your unrighteousnesses and remember your sins no more. Will God keep these promises? He never breaks a covenant promise. Never. That's why our... Okay, and I'm not going to yell or scream. But that's why our confidence is sure. This is a... This is a... When God makes a covenant, he doesn't break it. That's what communion is about. So as you go and take the bread and the juice, you know what I want you to think about? God's saying, I will put my law on your mind and write it on your heart. I will cause you to know me. And I will be merciful to your unrighteousnesses and remember your sins no more. Is that something to celebrate? Is that something to celebrate? That's what communion's about. So during the course of these songs, go get the elements and be grateful for the new covenant that Jesus died to inaugurate.